Welcome to Bethel Cleveland's Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy today's message. For more information on this podcast and other resources, please go to BethelCleveland.com. Thank you. I always look forward to returning to Bethel Cleveland, one of my favorite places. Uh, I do regret that I'm not getting to see Pastor Steve and, and uh, Cindy. Um, I mentioned this earlier, and I understand that time is at a premium, or maybe I should say I'm on a really short leash here, so I've got to get busy. <clears throat> um, but um, in the last few years, some of the prophetic words that Steve has given to me have been some of the most profound prophetic words that I've received in over 42 years of doing this. <clears throat> so I highly, esteem, <clears throat> I highly esteem this man. <clears throat> You're going to have to bear with me because <clears throat> I developed, uh, it's not, uh, of course, what's going around, but uh, I think I am having an allergic reaction that is kind of <clears throat> giving me difficulty. So there, that's a little better. <laughs> So good to see you again. I want you to turn very quickly, if you will, to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, and I'm going to read verses of Scripture that I'm sure are familiar to most of you. But I intend on maybe taking a different approach than what you have previously experienced in looking at these texts in the book of Romans. So while you're finding your place there, how many of you can resonate with this meme that I saw this past week that said, in retrospect, in 2015, um, not a single person got the answer right to where do you see yourself in five years? I saw that, I chuckled, and I thought it would uh, add a little levity here before I get started. In Romans chapter 8, beginning... With verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself, and you understand that Paul is reaching back for the beginning, for the Genesis, when he is talking about this. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, We wait for it in patience. And probably the best known soundbite in the book of Romans 
verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, I start by saying I've been somewhat reticent about taking this particular text because, in my opinion, verse 28 has been taken out of context and misinterpreted by so many well-intentioned people. All things work together for the good for them that love the Lord and are the called according to his purpose. Not long ago, I was reading A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens, this wonderful novel, and some of this verbiage you'll be familiar with, and I thought, this is so relevant for our times. He said it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. <clears throat> it was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief, it was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light, it was the season of darkness. It was a spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. This guy sounds like he's as confused as a termite in a yo-yo, doesn't he? He says, it's the best of times, it's the worst of times, the age of wisdom, the age of foolishness. If that doesn't capture the present climate that we're in right now, I don't know what does. You see, we have been living with a certain orientation now for quite a long time. And then this disruption, this interruption in our way of life has created a disorientation. That disorientation will ultimately lead to a reorientation. <clears throat> Some put it this way. We've gone from order to disorder that will lead us to a reordering. And I don't want that just to sound like, you know, a clever framing of words, but I think if I had time to examine that in greater depth, you would see the direction more clearly in which I would like to go this morning. Disorientation, disorientation that leads to reorientation. And I know that it may sound counterintuitive to most of you here this morning, but some good things have to fall apart, at least as I see it, so that better things can come together. We are drowning in a tsunami of information now more than ever before in this culture. The problem with it is even though we are being inundated, being, we're drowning in information, wisdom, it seems to be, it's being cut in half. Real discernment is being lost. <clears throat> Maybe we need to revisit a practical definition of wisdom and understand that wisdom is learning not to say, why is this happening to me? But what is it saying to me? And there's a big difference between the two because usually what happens in crisis is that we have the tendency to say, why is this happening to me rather than what it is it saying to me? Possibly you would agree with me that worry has so hijacked and even shrunk our imagination that it's difficult for us to see through a prophetic lens. We use our imaginations all the time, so we might as well use them in the way that God originally intended them. The prophet in the Old Testament in particular models and embodies a new way of thinking and being that allows us to imagine a larger way of living. 
to enter into a reality that is beyond anything that we have ever seen before or ever experienced. I said this earlier, and I've been saying it a lot lately. I think obsessing over this present evil is a greater evil than the evil itself. Jesus said, if your eye be single, then your whole body will be filled with light. All of this is calling us into a refocusing being more intentional than ever before, understanding that as people of the kingdom, we have to see what we believe rather than believing what we see. We live in a media-controlled culture that they, they control or they create a dominant narrative. Tonight, when you lie down to sleep, they are already crafting what they intend for you to pay attention to tomorrow. And I know that may sound conspiratorial to a lot of people, but it's true all the same. In the words of John Mayer, who I have a particular affinity for his music, in his song, Waiting on the World to Change, he said, they own all the news so they can bend it all they want while we're waiting on the world to change. Right now, we are in a time where I agree that we should be concerned about what's going on Concerned, yes, but not consumed. Absolutely concerned, but not consumed. We really are in the middle of a crisis of unbelief. And in a crisis of unbelief, we insist on total knowing. It's in the middles. It's in that liminal space. It's in the middles that ambiguity tries to rule our thinking process. So, now that I've said that, I want to tell you what I've came to talk to you about out of this particular text. Because the default setting of most believers is Romans 8.28. When crisis occurs, they say, well, God is in control. Or God has got this. And I want to challenge that idea. Is God in control? Well, he is in control, but not in the way that we expect him to be in control. This sounds like somewhat of a conundrum, doesn't it? But when we glibly say, God is in control, God is sovereign, you know, what about the omnis? He is omnipotent, he is omniscient, and he is omnipresent. These are the words that we refer to whenever we're trying in almost a feeble way to explain his sovereignty, that he reigns over all, in all, and through all. But I've come to the conviction that God is not in control in the way that we assume him to be in control. Let there be a pregnant pause there for a minute. All things work together for the good for them that love the Lord and are the called according to his purpose. But he says that in the context, remember the first verse that I read, that I do not count the sufferings of this present time to be compared to the glory. Suffering is a part of the human experience. We don't pray for it. 
We certainly believe that he wants to, uh, to deliver us from many forms of suffering, but sometimes he chooses not to deliver us from it, but he delivers us through it. In the later verses of the book of Hebrews, after we have the litany of references to all the patriarchs and matriarchs of faith and what they did by faith, as he comes to the end, there are people that were not delivered out of a situation, but they were delivered through it, and they remain anonymous unto this day, and the writer would even say that we're not even worthy that their name should be mentioned to us. So sometimes it is not, pardon me for this sounding like some pun, sometimes it is not so much about us getting out of something, but going through it and growing through it. The belief that God is all-powerful does not mean that God always exercises all of his power. It only means that God is the ultimate source of power. You see, we want God to control things. And the reason why when things do not play out in the way that we expected that they play out and causes suffering for us is because we are attached to expected outcomes. I want to say that again because I know that there are people in this room that have experienced loss. Some of you are going through it right now. And the thing that exacerbates your mental and emotional suffering is that you had an attachment to an expected outcome. And when that didn't happen, you don't realize that what is happening is that God is transforming your understanding of the human experience and how to interpret pain. Because if we don't transform pain, we become transmitters of pain. You know, this verse of scripture has been referenced quite often in the last few months from the book of Hebrews that God is shaking everything that can be shaken so that only those things that cannot be shaken will remain so that he might receive an unshakable kingdom. Right? The next verse, which I think adds continuity to that entire statement, is that God is a consuming fire. God is a consuming fire. And those who adhere to penal substitution those who adhere to a more punitive view of God see that in a very vengeful way, that God is vengeful. And in reality, God's judgment has never been punitive. It's always restorative. I'll say that again. God's judgment has never been punitive. It's been restorative. So when he talks about God being a consuming fire, we know that in all the ways that we can describe who God is, that ultimately God is love. He doesn't have love. He doesn't give love. He is love. That's his very essence. So that gives me a total different understanding of the meaning that God is a consuming fire. It means that everything that eventually gets in close proximity to him, he consumes it not for the purpose of destruction, but for transformation. If you burn some material substance, if I took the top of this podium off and I set it on fire there on the floor, it wouldn't cease to exist. It would change forms. 
The ashes would be laying there and you wouldn't be able to identify the form in which it once was because it's transformed into a gas. You can't see it, but it's still as real as it was when it was in this solid form. Are you getting what I'm saying? Yes, God is a consuming fire. I think that he is consuming and it's a loving thing. God is consuming all of those things that we believed about him in error. That's one of the most interesting things to me about God is that he will allow you to believe a lie about him and not try to convince you otherwise. You see, I'm an, I'm an insecure father. I have three adult sons, and if any of them believed a lie about me, I would, do, I would move heaven and earth to try to convince them that they were wrong. But see, God is not insecure in his love. God will allow you to believe things that are in error because he's not controlling like you are. Is God in control? Maybe not in the way that we think he is. See, many people in the church have been taught that divine sovereignty is synonymous with unilateral control. Some have even argued that if God is not in control of everything, then something is in control of him. But I got a question for you. Why should we think that God would cease to be God because he decided to create something that he does not meticulously control? Are you there? Should I ask that again? Why should we think that God would cease to be God because he decided to create something he does not meticulously control? No, God must control everything in order to exist. Why should we suppose that, that this is the most exalted, let alone the most conceivable form of sovereignty? Interesting, huh? I've had this conversation a lot lately. See, because it is hard to conceive of a weaker God than the one who we would be threatened by, who would be threatened by events occurring outside of that control. Really, what's praiseworthy about controlling something simply because you have the power to do it? What's praiseworthy about that? Sure, God could control everything if he wanted to since it's his creation, but that's not what he's chosen to do. That's not what he's chosen to do. I think the greatest testimony of God's sovereignty is the fact that God created beings who possess the power to say no to him. Now the text that we read, I just kind of glided over it because we could spend weeks on each one of those verses. He said, all of creation is groaning and in travail, even until now, and we groan within ourselves. There's this resonance, isn't there? And I think that's an apt description of what's going on in the creation. As a matter of fact, it has been, it has been said that all the sounds in creation are in a minor key. They're in a minor key. Now, my knowledge of music is rather limited, but I do understand basically that the way a minor key, that sound is created is by taking a major key and falling a half step. Interesting, falling a half step. I mean, everything, 
everything in creation is is creating this sound that is in a minor key. I mean, listening listening to the sound of the wind howling around the hotel this morning. I got up and saw the news that you're going to have these blustery, gusty winds throughout the day today, and I could hear it whipping around the hotel, and I was reminded of this, the moaning and the groaning of the wind. I live at the ocean, and when I stand with my feet in the surf, and I hear as one wave crashes upon another, I hear that sound of creation moaning and groaning. Even some of the birds, the sounds that they make when they're singing is in a minor key. All of nature is singing, but it's singing a song of bondage like Paul said here in Romans chapter 8. It's sing, but we should be singing a different song. We should be singing a song of hope. We should be elevating. Are you with me so far? We should be elevating the consciousness of everybody around us. Creation groaning. Yeah, that's an apt description. I mean, this year we have seen a parade of hurricanes develop out in the Atlantic. Cities on fire. There's rioting. There's culture wars that have become the accepted norm. Racist rhetoric. Economic instability and uncertainty. I mean, all these things have created this groaning in creation. And Paul would say what that ought to be is a clue to us of imminent hope. It's the best of times and the worst of times. It's a time of epic belief and unbelief, as Dickens said. You feel the tension, don't you? We all feel the tension. I think something that we have to come to terms with is understanding that there is truly a distinction between the word faith and belief. There's a distinction between faith and belief, even though that we have made them synonymous in application. Believing, hear this now, believing is a what word? Believing, it's a thinking word. It's a word to describe the content of your thoughts. I believe that God exists and atheists do not. I believe that God created the world. It's not a random chance event. I believe in Jesus Christ. You know, I I can point to the church, to the creeds of the church. That's a thinking word. It's a what word. But faith is a who word. Faith has to do with an object. Faith, it really, better translated in the New Testament as well as in the Old, faith is better understood as trust, which means we are learning now like never before to trust him when we can absolutely not trace him. I love the words of Mark Twain. It's not the things that we don't know that give us trouble, but it's the things that we're certain of that just aren't so. We are caught in this middle right now. Remember I told you orientation, disorientation, reorientation, order, disorder, reorder. We're caught in this space right now where there's extreme tension. And it really is a good place if we learn how to discern, we learn how to walk in wisdom, the wisdom that he has given us and have an imagination that is beyond anything that is in this present reality. It causes us to realize control is an illusion. The way you see things, the way I see things are not the way they are. It's just the way I see them. And it is not until I change the way I see things that the things I see will begin to change. 
We look not, Paul said, at the things which are seen, but at the things which are unseen. For the things which are seen or temporal are vacillating, constantly changing, but the things which are unseen are eternal. They are eternal. Is God in control? You're afraid to respond. He's just not controlling it the way that we would like for him to. We are in what I would refer to as a crucible of trust and faith. What is, a, what is the purpose of a crucible? What is this ancient art form, this ancient practice in the Old Testament? A crucible is this instrument that almost looks like a walk, right? Made of a special metal. And it was used to separate alloy from gold and silver. It's heated to intense temperatures. And this is the only way to separate the precious from the vile. This is only the way to separate that which appears to be real from that which is really of value. Are you with me so far? I mean, I hear people all the time that tell me, you know, I'm trusting God. I'm trusting God, which really means that they're obsessing. They're obsessing. I, I, I really, I, I'm not trying to be hard on you, but I talk to people that say, I've been really praying about this and I know being interpreted, what, what, what that really means is that they're obsessing over it. I love the words of this Australian poet that says, you know, in light of us sometimes needing answers and not getting them when we need them most, she said, don't search for the answers. You gotta listen to this one closely. Don't search for the answers which cannot be given to you now because you'd not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps then someday, far in the future, you will gradually, without even noticing it, live your way into the answer. Habakkuk is one of the minor prophets and usually when we reference Habakkuk, people immediately remember the reference in chapter two because it is used quite often at the beginning of the year, you know, concerning writing the vision and making it plain. <clears throat> and I think we, we misinterpret that as well by not going at back and seeing the broader context of what Habakkuk is dealing with. Habakkuk was given an unusual name, a very unusual name. And you do know, I'm sure, that in the Old Testament in particular, names were not given indiscriminately in the way that we give names to our children, rather indiscriminately. Usually the name of a boy or a girl was given on the, on the basis or on the context of their conception or their birth. For example, Isaac is given that name, Laughter, because his mother laughed at the biological impossibility of her conceiving. So we'll call him laughter. And on and on it goes. There's something that is a subject that would warrant the rest of the day in teaching because it's really powerful. Habakkuk is giving this unusual name. It means wrestler. Now, I'm not sure why he was called wrestler. Maybe in vitro, when he is forming in his mother's womb, he was a rather active child, keeping her up at night, doing somersaults inside of her. 
tumbling and turning and wrestling, or maybe when he emerged from his mother's womb, he was wiggly and you know un- out of control. But the reason why that is of significance is the way that his prophecy opens. His prophecy opens like this. He says, how long, Lord, must I call and you do not listen? And he goes on this tirade for the first three verses, I believe it is, of Habakkuk chapter one, the wrestler. And finally, God interrupts his tirade And he says this to him. He said, I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if I were to tell you. In other words, what he's saying, you are desperate for an explanation, but if I explained to you what I was going to do in the future, you wouldn't even believe it. Some of the answers that I'm desperate for right now, maybe many of you are desperate for right now, the reason why you're not getting them, it's not just that God is sadistically withholding them from you. He knows that over-explanation will always rob you of astonishment. And astonishment is the doorway into the greater reality of the way he sees things. <laughs> How many of you have more questions right now than you have answers? Don't everybody respond at one time. I'll ask you again to give everybody an opportunity to participate. How many of you have more questions now than you have answers? It's good to be with you because I've been there for years. It's right, it seems like my journey has looked like this. About the time I get what I believe to be satisfying answers to my questions, He changes the questions. (laughs) I'll just say this, you know, in being vulnerable with you. I have a deep need to be in control of my destiny, my health, my career, my finances. You probably don't, but I have a deep need to be in control. And control is attempted by worrying. And worries can feel like control. We think if we worry about something that we can influence it. How many of you, that's not working very well for you? I mean, Jesus reminds us how many of you, even by taking thought, can change, you know, one single span of your life. So how is it that we live with the contradictions How is it we learn to live with the contradictions? Let me ask you another question. How many of you have had God to say something to you, personally, intimately to you, maybe months or even years ago, and the way your journey looks right now, everything that he said to you, that you knew unquestionably he said to you, that your journey since then, it looks like that He was lying. Now, don't look at me in that tone of voice. You may not admit that to other people, but if you got a pulse, I'm sure in your journey, you have wondered to yourself, God lied to me. God lied to me. Can I help you with that? Would you like help with that this morning? Okay, I'll share it with the next church, the next service. I ask you a question. Would you like help with that this morning? If God tells you something that's not true, it becomes true just because he said it. 
That's why the writer would say he calls those things that are not as though they are. He doesn't call those things that are as though they're not. He calls those things that are not as though they are. And this is how we learn how to live with the contradictions. We just learn to live them. I'm not talking about just enduring or trying to be relieve, relieve ourselves from the tension by quickly resolving them. We just learn how to live them. We realize that God declared the end from the beginning. Let us say that together. This is taken from the book of Isaiah. God declared the end from the beginning. Shall we say it again? God declared the end from the beginning. That is so helpful to me as I'm caught in the middle. In this space where ambiguity restlessly rules. We start things to finish them. God finishes them, then he starts them. That's why he is the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. We can either choose to be prisoners of time or as the prophet Zechariah said, prisoners of hope. What an unusual pairing of words. Prisoners of hope. We have the choice right now. We are living really as prisoners of time. The whole country is losing its mind over an election. It's losing its mind over what is happening to the economy. And we have, our mantra for so very long has been what? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. You think that's gonna happen without a degree of disruption and interruption and corruption? Yes, he really is invading. See, we think that the invasion of heaven to earth is never messy. That it comes within our realm of reality. It comes in manifestations that we are comfortable with. It just doesn't work that way. Because every time you see God invading history, remember this, God doesn't live in time. He manifests his purposes in time. Time is nothing more than an island in the ocean of eternity where he manifests his purposes. And whenever God invades and brings a disruption, I'm not saying he's responsible for everything that is happening right now. We're the ones that are culpable for it. We're the ones. Anymore, did God crucify his son? No, God didn't crucify his son. Peter would stand up on the day of Pentecost and he says, you wicked men have crucified him. You kill the Lord of glory. Control is being wrenched from our hands and we want him to work it out. All things work together for the good for them that love the Lord and are the called according to his purpose. Is he in control? Yeah, he is, but not just in the way you expected it. Amen. Why don't you stand?
Father, maybe one of the most powerful things that fell from your lips we have overlooked when you were stretched out like a canvas on a cross between heaven and earth. And you said, into your hands, into the Father's hands, we commend our spirits. Sometimes when things are dying, when some things are falling apart, the most powerful thing that we can say is into your hands, we commend our spirit. We relinquish the right to control. We relinquish our controlling thoughts of the way we think you ought to control things and we recognize our attachment to expected outcomes. And we choose to be prisoners of hope, not prisoners of time. In Jesus' name, amen. Bless you guys. I've enjoyed being with you. Thank you.